0: Have you heard the story about the game warden who was curious how there was a certain man in town who was always catching so many fish? So one day the game warden decided he would go fishing with him. And they went to this guy's, uh, in this guy's boat to his favorite spot in the lake. And when they got there, the game warden's waiting to see what the man would do. And the man reaches into his tackle box and he grabs a stick of dynamite and he lights it and he throws in the water. Boom! Fish. Lots of fish. And the man just starts scooping up the fish. And the, the, the game warden doesn't even know what to say. He's just shocked for a while. And he goes, that, that, that's illegal. But the man just finished scooping up the fish. He takes another stick of dynamite. He lights it. He throws it in the water. Boom. More fish. The game warden's had just about enough of it now. He says, that's it. You stop that. I should arrest you right now. And that caused the man to stop scooping up those fish. And he puts the net down. He takes out another stick of dynamite, he lights it, and this time, he throws it into the game warden's lap, and he says, are you going to talk, or are you going to (laughs) fish? This morning, we're concluding our series on church basics 101, and we've considered the character of the church, and we've considered what we do is the worship of the church on Sunday mornings, and then we've also spent the last few weeks on what, what is the work of the church? The work of the church in serving and edification and missions. And this morning, our last part in the series, we're going to talk about what has God called us to do as a church in the area of evangelism. You see, Jesus' first commission was for the disciples to be fishers of men. And his final commission was likewise to be witnesses by making disciples. But here's the problem. The problem is that the church... And and at times, our church can be no different. The church can do a lot of talk about witnessing. The church can read books about outreach. The church can hear sermons about evangelism. But really, it all is going to come down to that question, are we as a church going to talk or are we going to fish? Now, I'm not recommending evangelism by dynamite. I'm, I'm, I'm guessing that's not as effective as fishing would be. But I think we should ask the question, Why is it that we, and I could say, why is it that I, right, why do we like to talk more about evangelism than actually do evangelism? And we realize there's all sorts of barriers that we have that keep us from witnessing, and we have these barriers of fear and these barriers of apathy and these barriers of busyness, right? And why do we have these barriers and these fears and these lack of motivations, It's because we don't see things like God sees them, right? We we are so focused on how we see things. We don't have God's perspective, at least in this area. We've learned God's perspective, but we're not living out God's perspective. And so this morning, what we need is to be stirred up by way of reminder of what is God's perspective on evangelism? What does God want to do in and through us and in through this church? we want to do and understand that, not just that we just talk more, so that the God would renew our minds to give us his perspective, that we would go live that out. In that light, I want to look at Acts 8. Acts tells about the account of the early church, and we see that after Jesus' ascension into heaven, the disciples, they go and they are witnessing, they're evangelizing, they're they're sharing this good news of Jesus, and we see this amazing fruit that's brought in. And we should ask, how did they do this? What was going through their minds and their hearts? They didn't just talk about evangelism. They were doing it. So what's going on here? But we see that in their context, it's not just, well, it was easy for them. Of course, they did it. They were hanging out with Jesus. They saw people come to the Lord. It was easy for them. No, we saw that it was hard for them. There's opposition to the church. There was opposition to their witness. We see that in the chapter before this, in Acts chapter 7, when Stephen, one of the early church leaders, was stoned to death because of his witness, For the gospel. And all of that brings us to Acts chapter 8. Let me read verses 1 through 4. It's a transition passage between 7 and the the next section of the gospel, but there's some important keys here. Luke writes this and Saul approved of his, Stephen's, execution. He reminds us of what just happened. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now, here's our key verse this morning. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. In this passage, we have an example. We have Luke setting an example of the early church that we can ask What is it that they were doing that we're not? What did they understand that we often forget? We find here God's divine perspective on evangelism. So let's ask some questions of this text, questions we can ask of really any text, right? Who, what, where, when, why, and how, right? So let's ask those questions. First, what does Acts 8 say about the who of evangelism? Look at Acts 8, 4. Who's the who there? Who's the one witnessing the word? Those who were scattered. Well, who's that? We have to look back at Acts 8.1. Go back a few verses. And who is the they that were scattered? The church. That's right. The church in Jerusalem was scattered. The church, the congregation of those following Jesus was scattered. The persecution came, and they were scattered, especially probably those like Stephen who are Hellenistic believers. But we see the church is scattered throughout the region. But Luke says that not the whole church was scattered because he says everyone was scattered except Who? Except the apostles. Think about that for a moment. Those doing the evangelism in verse 4, the witnesses in God's plan right here are not the church leaders. Now, this is not to say church leaders shouldn't evangelize. I'm not saying that. This is not an excuse if you're a church leader saying, oh, wow, there's my verse. that's That's not what I'm saying. But the point here is that it's not just church leaders. We know Peter was doing it. We know John was doing it. We know James was doing it. We know Stephen was doing it. But here's the thing, it's not just them. It was the whole church. It was was the opposite in this case. It was the rest of the church doing it in this case. God's plan is that the whole church, every member, every person who is a follower of Jesus Christ is called to be his witness. Who is called to be God's witness? Every Christian. That's what God's saying. What is God's evangelism program. If we were to ask God, what is your strategy for bringing the gospel to our mountain community? What's your strategy? God would say from his word, the church. The church is God's evangelism program. You and me are God's evangelism program and everyone at the back too, right? We're all God's evangelism program for this mountain area, His program is that we would gather on Sunday mornings like we do for edification and for worship and to be built up in the word and fellowship. But then throughout the week, we're scattered. We're scattered throughout this area into different workplaces and different schools and different neighborhoods as we're salt and light throughout the community. That's God's program of how we as one church affect the community. The Great Commission is not, go therefore all ye extroverts. Right? That word's not in there. All of us are to go. We're all to be, we're we're all called to make disciples by each of us witnessing to the Savior who saved us. See, if we misunderstand the who, if we start getting the wrong idea about the who here, we get to some wrong kind of thinking about evangelism. We start thinking, I don't need to be alert for new relationships with unbelievers because I'm an introvert. That's for extroverts like Don Collins. He makes lots of friends. I'm just not that kind of guy. Right? But God's saying no, that we're all called to be alert for those types of relationships. Or we, we start thinking, I, I don't know enough about the Bible. They're going to ask a question I don't know the answer to. I, we'll just, we're just going to leave it for the, the, the church, the pastor. That's why we pay the pastors. And they'll, they'll have some sort of events, and they can do all, all that, and, and, and I'll pray for them. Well, no, it, it says that we're all supposed to. It doesn't say, if you know if you know your apologetics, then you're to be a witness. No, we're all to be Witnesses. It doesn't say, you know, we can get the wrong thinking here and say, ah, I don't need to be intentional with my non-Christian relationships because that's what Joe's pizza outreach is for. No. (laughs) these, These ideas misunderstand that you, you, each of us are God's plan for reaching the people around us in our lives with the gospel. We are the ones who have the hope and the joy and the peace and the forgiveness that people need to hear about. Can, can we be honest? Most people don't come to know Christ through programs. Like if we did a survey right now, we'd probably find out most people have come to know Christ through a friend or a family member, right? Someone who has a relationship with them and has shared with them what, what Christ has done in their lives and can do in, in their uh, others as well. Or maybe that friend or that family member has built the relationship so they can bring them to church. And so they can bring them to the pizza outreach. So they can bring them to, to, to some sort of church event. But it starts with you having a relationship. It, it's, it's not just about a program. It's about you having relationships with them. You see, it, it, that's the way the church is supposed to work, that we individually are salt and light, that then we work together as a church to reach people with the gospel. Just, and that's the idea here. It's not just about, okay, you go. It's you on an island, and good luck with that. No, no. We are individually called to be witnesses, but the Bible never says that we are called to be witnesses just as individuals. You notice that? It's, it's you and I are called to be witnesses, but not just you and I. It, it's God has placed us within this church, not that we expect the church to do evangelism so that we don't, but so that the church would be an encouragement for evangelism. The church would be, we would work to encourage us in evangelism and help as we say, I don't know the answer to that question, but I have a friend who does. Right? We, 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 we have responsibility individually, but we work together at the same time. That if you're reading this, the, the Max Stiles book, From Man to Man, Woman to Woman, that's the whole point of his book. I'm sorry I ruined it for you, but that's the whole point right there, is that we as the church are God's evangelism program. You should still read the book. But the point is that we're supposed to work together in evangelism, not the sense of Joe's going to do evangelism for you but his pizza outreach. No. It's that the way that Joe's pizza outreach is going to work the best is if you make relationships with friends. And then we work together as we, we, we witness to them. And then we encourage one another. We hold each other accountable. We support one another. We rejoice when th- things happen that are joyful. We, we weep when things happen that are difficult. And, and, and we, we encourage each other uh, as we do that together. Because Let's be honest. Can we be honest that one of the reasons we do more talking than doing of evangelism is that sometimes evangelism can be scary. Some of you are saying, I'm an extrovert. Not scary for me. Okay, God bless you. For some of us, evangelism is scary. I-, I am not a natural extrovert. Evangelism can be intimidating, but you know what's not as intimidating is when you don't have to do it by yourself. You're not alone on an island. We're all doing this individually to work at this together. And, and, and also evangelism can be so difficult because we're living more and more in a culture where you might be the only person they know who thinks something weird like someone raised from the dead. You're like the guy who believes in UFOs, right? You know that friend who is always into X-Files and conspiracy theories and, and UFOs and all this sort of stuff. That's all they could talk about. That's you. Yeah, this guy, he rose from the dead. He's coming back on a flying white horse and he's going to take us all into his kingdom. Uh-huh right but and so it can be hard right but you know what happens when you build relationships with them and, and you bring them and you introduce them to to your christian friends and you have them over for dinner with some of your christian friends or for a barbecue or or something like that sort they start to realize you know what you're not so weird because S- steve steve believes that he's he's pretty cool maybe you're weird but steve's pretty cool right and he believes this too and, and you start to you start to, it's not as hard when you do it together We do it individually. We're individually building those relationships. That means we don't have to just do it by ourselves. That's the who of evangelism. It's you and it's me, but it's you and me working together as a church. But now let's look at the what. Let's look at the what of evangelism. Look again at Acts chapter 8, verse 4. What are they doing? What are these scattered believers doing? What is the words Luke used to describe their actions? They went about doing what? Preaching the word. Now, that does not necessarily mean they're out preaching sermons, right? In fact, if you have a New American Standard translation of the Bible, there's a helpful footnote that indicates that this word can mean they're bringing the good news. And and that is getting to the heart of what's going on here. I, I, I don't like to normally go into the Greek. I'm a Greek nerd. Steve has pointed that out before. But I don't like to go into the Greek because the English translations we have are so good, But every once in a while, the Greek really does help clarify something. That this word, this verb of what they're doing is euangelizo. It's related to the word euangelion, or good news, or gospel. That's what they were doing. As as Luke, as Pastor Ray used to translate this verse, Luke is saying these people went about gospeling. If you can turn the word gospel into a verb, that's what they're doing. That's what Luke is saying. The, these, those who were scattered went about gospeling. It's not a good English, but that's what he's saying. See, the what of evangelism here is not about a method. It's not saying if you're going to evangelism, you have to learn how to preach. That's not what he's saying. That's, that's a, a hard way to, to, to translate that, that word. It's not about the, the method, it's about the message. These people could, could have been preaching. They could have been preaching on a sidewalk. They could have just been talking to a coworker over lunch, they could have been teaching a group of children. They they could have been sharing a story with a neighbor. Any of those could have been what they're doing because the what of evangelism is not about the method. The what of evangelism they're doing is about gospeling, that it has the message of the gospel. If you've been reading Sam Chan's book, From Man to Man, Woman to Woman, this is one of his main points, that evangelism is not defined by the method, it's defined by the message. That's what Luke is saying here. That what does it mean to evangelize? It means to communicate in in whatever way the gospel of Jesus Christ. It may not be the same way that you had that communicated to you. It may not be the same way that someone else in church communicates that. It may not even be the same way you communicate it to one person that a different person in your life because it's different people with different circumstances. The method is not what's important. It's the message that what makes evangelism evangelism. What does it mean to be a witness? It means to be one who is gospeling, that we are are communicating the gospel in our relationships, that whatever method we would use, we are sharing the message of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, if you're here this morning, and this is new for you, you're visiting with this morning, and you have never heard about or you've never trusted in this good news of Jesus, we want to say welcome. We are so glad that you are here this morning. We have good news for you this good news of what God has done to offer you this free gift of salvation through his son, Jesus Christ. And you can sum up this good news if you want to make it simple. You can sum this up in four simple points. God, man, Christ, response. That's a basic way to sum up God's good news for you. The good news is about God, that there is a God, a true God who created you. And he is a good God and he is a loving God. And in fact, if you're here this morning and, and you don't, don't know it, God loves you. You may be here this morning and you don't know if anyone loves you. You're going through the, the difficulties of life and you're just at, at rock bottom and, and you need to know that God loves you. But God loves you, but that does not mean that God is not just or that God is not, 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 not holy. In fact, when we love someone, we hate the things that, that destroy that thing, that, that one And that's what God is. God hates sin. God must do justice with sin. He must punish sin. And that gets to our next point, is that that God, and there's the truth about man, is that, that you and I are created in the image of God. Every person is created in the image of God and worthy of dignity and respect. But even though we were created in God's image, we have rebelled against the God who created us. We've rebelled against him in our sin. We have declared ourselves enemies of God, saying, I will not honor you as God. I will not recognize you as God. I'm going to live for myself and not in light of you. That's a rebellion, spiritual rebellion against the God who created us. And so God loves us, but he must, he must punish our sin. But God solved that problem in the person of Jesus Christ. That, that, that Jesus, that God sent his son Jesus to, to solve this problem of sin, where Jesus lived the perfect life for us, so that he could be the perfect sacrifice when he died on the cross for our sins. He died in our place as our substitute, paying for our sins for us. So that, that, that he was risen from the dead after three days, so that, that we could have that forgiveness, that, that, that truth, that so that that's true, that he's vindicated, that all that he said was true, and he offers us this forgiveness and this everlasting life. And the question that the Bible continually asks is, what will you do with this Jesus? How will you respond to this Jesus? How do you receive this gift of eternal life? The Bible says that we receive it through repentance, which means we turn from our sin. We recognize that that is rebellion against God. We turn from our sin and we turn to Jesus, trusting him in faith as Savior and as Lord, as he is. If, if you would like to know more about this gospel, if you would like to know more about this Jesus and how you can have this gift of eternal life, we'd love to tell you more. We're not going to pressure anyone. We just want to answer your questions. We want to introduce you to this Savior who has this amazing gift of eternal life. Please don't leave this morning. We'd love to talk to you. Talk to your, your, uh, the person who brought you. Talk to any member of our church. I'll be at the back of the sanctuary and love to talk to you as well. This, this is the gospel that, 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 that makes Christianity Christianity. And so my Christian brothers and sisters, let me ask you, is this still good news for you? Because here's the thing, that there's a point where we know this, but is it in our hearts still good news? How do we be gospeling? How do we share the good news if we're not really continually being reminded and believing it is good news? Do you still wonder at the effect of amazing grace that God could save a wretch like you? We need, and me, we need to be reminded of that. Do, are, we, are, we rem- are we still wondering at God's amazing love? How can it be that God would die for me? I love the story of, of the 19th century evangelist Gypsy Smith. Gypsy Smith was an evangelist who saw thousands of people come to Christ through his ministry. And he continued to minister. He continued to share his faith. He continued to, 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 to share the gospel. And he was once asked, how do you keep going? How do you keep doing this? Day after day, what is your motivation to keep sharing and keep evangelizing, keep witnessing? What is your your, your motivation to all of this? I love his answer. He says this. He says, because I never lost the wonder of it all. I love that. I never lost the wonder of it all. You see, I think sometimes we do more talk about evangelism than doing evangelism because we've stopped believing that it really is good news. We stop, we, we've lost the wonder of the songs we were singing about. We lost the wonder of the truth that we're talking about, That we know that, that we know it, but we're not believing it. We need to regain that wonder. You see, you don't need to be an expert in apologetics. You don't need to be an expert in systematic theology for God to use you as his witness. You just need to know the good news that saved you. You need to be so amazed with that good news that, of course, you would share it with others. That's what it is. You don't have to fear not knowing the right answer when you're like the man born blind in John 9. And he says, One thing I do know, where I was once blind, but now I see. He didn't know all the other answers. There's some questions he just didn't know the answer for, but he did know the one answer that was most important. My friends, we don't know all the answers sometimes, but that shouldn't stop us from sharing that good news because we know the answer that does count. We know the good news, and we know that good news of Jesus, that God, man, Christ response, and we know that he saved a wretch like me. We know that he changed my life, and that same news can change others' lives as well. That's the what of evangelism. It's not the method. It's just the message and being amazed at that message of the gospel. Next, the why. Why? Why evangelism? Think of, I, just, I just was just meditating on this passage this week. Think about the situation in Acts 8, and do like I did this week. Imagine you're in their shoes. They have just fled from their homes, from their jobs, from their friends, from their communities, from their church, because of real persecution. Like, you're going to die or be in jail kind of persecution if you're a Christian. I mean, that's, that's, that's intense, right? What would be going through your mind? If you had just had to flee like that, what would be on your to-do list? I need to find a new house, new place to live, new job, new school for the kids. I mean, literally everything I have is in the car we fled the city with. Right? Maybe you're thinking, how do I protect my family from that happening again? We're never going to let that happen again somewhere else. I don't know about you. That, those are the things that I probably would be thinking about. You, anyone, anyone agree? Yeah? Instead, what are they thinking about? How does Luke communicate their mindset in verse 4? What are they thinking about? They go to this new place. They had just been chased away from persecution. And here's what they're thinking. How does this situation bring about new opportunities to tell about Jesus? They're scattered. And the first thing they do is they go about proclaiming the gospel. I'm humbled by these brothers and sisters in Christ. Because that would not be me. It shows that there there is areas in my life where I am not as amazed at the gospel as I think I am. Because my question here is why? Why do they think that way and I think this way? Why do I think about how do I not let that happen again and how do they think about look more opportunities to tell people about Jesus? What's the disconnect? Well, well Luke tells us the why. But we have to actually look backwards to the whole book of Acts, the theme verse of all of Acts. Turn back to Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Acts chapter 1 verse 8 is the theme verse of all of Acts. It sets the, the course of everything that's going to happen in the rest of Acts. It's Jesus' last words. It's the last word they remember Jesus saying, the last impression they left. This is what it means to be a follower of Christ for them, for us too. Chapter 1 verse 8, Jesus says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Here's Jesus' plan. He says, you're going to be my witnesses. You are, his people are the means of how he's going to spread his gospel, not just in Jerusalem, but to the ends of the earth. So how is he going to get that gospel to the ends of the earth? He's going to have to move people. So whenever they were going, they knew this is the reason for it, is an opportunity for witness. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus that God moves me wherever I'm going to be so that I could be a witness. See, in our minds, we start thinking, yes, God is going to reach the world some other way. I've got other things to worry about right now. But God's saying, no, I'm going to reach the world through you. That's what he's saying here, that he wants to use people. Yes, God can use other ways, but God does not use other ways. Look over at Acts 9 real quick as we're, we're heading back towards our, 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 the area of our verse was in. Acts chapter 9, verses 6 through, 4 through 6, we see Saul. We see Saul is still an unbeliever. He's on the road to Damascus. He's going to, to persecute Christians, and Jesus appears to him, right? That's it. That's how pe- God can reach the rest of other, other people around the mountain area in the world. Jesus can just appear to him. Well, look at, look at the verses here. Verse 4, And falling to the ground, he, Saul, heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. Wait a minute. Question here. Why not just tell him? Jesus is already there, right? Jesus is already there. I'm Jesus. I'm the one you're persecuting. Why not just tell him, and here's the gospel, and here's what you're to do? No, that's not what Jesus does. Jesus says, for what you really need to know, you've got to go talk to Ananias. But why not just tell him? Because God's plan is to use people. Could Jesus have explained it better than Ananias? Yes, right? But God's plan is not that way. God's plan is to use this man named Ananias who's just sitting there minding his business. And here's the witnessing opportunity. Uh, Acts chapter 10. We see the same thing in Acts chapter 10 with Cornelius. We have an angel now this time going to visit Cornelius. This one kills me. Verses 1 through 6, it says At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what uh, was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man that feared God and all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he s- stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who's called Peter. What? The angel's already there. Peter's in a whole nother city. Why not just tell him? Again, could the angel describe it better than Peter? Yeah, right? The angel knows some things, but that's not God's plan. God's plan was not to use the angel. God's plan was not even to use the appearance of Jesus Christ. God's plan was to use you and me. God's plan is to use people. And we see that we have to understand what's going on with evangelism. God is the one who has a plan. God is the one who saves people. He's the one who sovereignly opens people's hearts. That's why we want to pray for our our friends and our family members and our classmates and our coworkers and those in our mounted community because we do need God to, to work in their hearts. But how is God going to save them? How is God going to work in their life? What is God's instrument or his means of doing it? It's not an angel. It's not even a parent of Jesus. It's you and it's me. That's God's plan. Why are we to be witnesses? Because that's God's only plan of bringing his gospel is to use people like you and me. We are God's means. It's our responsibility that he gives us. Could God do it better in other ways? Yes, as Steve said in his sermon, God, I'm sure, have other ways to be better. But in this way, he's sharing that joy as he shares that responsibility with us. I've shared it before, but I'm so convicted by this idea of what does it mean as our responsibility in the lives of our friends and families and neighbors and coworkers. And I've shared this, 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 this illustration, but it's so powerful, by Penn Pen He's an atheist, He's he's an atheist, and, and he says this about evangelism, which he calls proselytizing. He says this, quote, I've always said, you know, that I don't respect people who don't proselytize. This is an atheist saying this. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and hell, and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life or whatever, and you think that, well, it's not really worth telling them because it might make it socially awkward. Get this, he says, how much do you have to hate someone to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate someone to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? I mean, if I believed beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point where I would tackle you, and this is much more important than that, unquote. What's the difference between everlasting life and everlasting hell? It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what is God's only plan of bringing that gospel to those who need to hear it? It's us. It's through his people. You see, sometimes we fear evangelism, and we think, "What but by by doing this, I do more harm than good. What if I do more harm by just doing a bad job than, than, than good? Well, we forget that the worst harm we could possibly do is not share anything. That's the worst case scenario. The great preacher Charles Spurgeon once said, If sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with with our arms wrapped around their knees, pleading them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions and let no one go unwarned or unprayed for. Why do we do evangelism? What's the motivation? It's because God's Plan, God's only plan, is that it's, it would, He would give that as us, as our responsibility. Next, let's look at the win of evangelism. Win of evangelism. Look, at, look back at Acts chapter 8, look at verses 1 through 3, and think about this context of when this evangelism was taking place. It's after one of the people who just evangelized got killed, right? I mean, there's a real threat of persecution of being killed or having the whole family dragged off to prison. I mean, personally, I would not find that a motivating strategy, right? It's like next Saturday, all church evangelism day, it's literally to die for. Ah, I get it, yeah. All right. But if we think about it, if we think seriously, what is the number one reason we don't evangelize? Fear, right? Can we all agree that almost for everybody, the number one reason we don't evangelize is fear. We're afraid afraid of rejection. We're afraid of consequences. We're afraid of people's reactions. And that's not illegitimate. Because people are going to reject the gospel. People are going to reject us because we are the messengers of the gospel. right? There's real things, real consequences that we understand. Surely the church in Acts 8 had some fear, right? There were real consequences they were facing for sharing the gospel, literally prison or death. But the difference between them and us is they did not let fear stop them. They didn't let their fear control them and my question is how right how what is the difference there again we have to think of the context of acts 1 8 how did they know they were going to be witnesses it wasn't i'm going to go to this new place and i know that i'm smart enough and i'm going to convince them and i know that nothing's going to happen to me because i'm in control no they knew they were not in control they had no guarantee that what was going to happen but they knew who was in control because how were they going to be witnesses? In Acts 1.8, Jesus tells them they will be witnesses when they receive the Spirit. Right? The Spirit makes the difference. Letting the Spirit work through their lives makes a difference. And in the New Testament, in, in 2 Timothy 1.7, he tells us about the Spirit. He says that God gave us a Spirit not of fear. Right? That's the link to fear here. The Spirit that God has given us, is not the Holy Spirit, is not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. When the Holy Spirit works in our life, when we walk in the Spirit, it's not a spirit of fear. It's a spirit of power. He's a spirit of power. We we feel fear when we're focused on ourselves, when we're focused on our our inadequacy, when we're focused on our our trying to control the situation. But we have to realize that we're not in control, but God is in control. And that that deals with our fear because God is the one who's in control. I've heard that Billy Graham was once asked, he's asked, Dr. Graham, do you get nervous when you, do, when you witness, when you evangelize? And, he, and his answer reportedly was, of course. If I wasn't nervous, it would mean that I'm doing it in my own strength. But we're not doing it in our own strength. We're not in control, but we're trusting God who is in control. We have a spirit not of fear, but of love. My friends, one of the saddest verses in all the Bible is in John chapter 12, where he says this. Many, even of the authorities, believed in him and Jesus. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. John would ask us, what do I love more? The Spirit reminds us of the love of God and would then cause us to respond in our love for God. Do I love the God who saved me enough that I would trust him with whatever circumstances my evangelism brings. spirit of love that overcomes our self-centeredness. Finally, it's not a spirit of fear, but a spirit of self-control. The New American Standard has a footnote that says, sound judgment. The way that we overcome fear is not just magic. It's from sound judgment. I'm thinking the truth about God. I'm renewing my minds with these truths. So I trust in him and his love so I can love him and love others by sharing the gospel. When should we witness? It's tempting to think, okay, I'll go share my faith when there's nothing to be, when I deal with my fear. I'll I'll share my faith when when the situation is good. No, the Bible says, Acts says, you share your faith if you've got the Holy Spirit because he's the one in control. He's the one we can trust. So we witness at all times because we always have the Spirit, even in situations that are fearful and even situations that are difficult. And think about this. If they had let their fear stop them, right, that they would have missed the next open door. Yes, the fear, that the situation closed in Jerusalem. They had to leave Jerusalem, and they could have said, we're not going to let that happen again, and they would have missed what God would have done in the rest of Judea and Samaria and Syria and beyond. Let's keep going. So that's the, the win. Look at the where of evangelism. Where? Where did they preach the word? What well, says everywhere? Wherever they went, they preached the word. Wherever God placed them, they were scattered. Pew! And wherever they landed, they knew that's where God had them, right? Think about it. Your circumstances, wherever you find yourself this week, it is not an accident. God in his providence has placed you there. When you find yourself, the house that you live in, the class that you have tomorrow, the the, the workplace that you're in, it's not an accident. God has providentially planned. You've been scattered there, but you've been scattered there for a purpose, to be a witness. Now, I'm not saying that tomorrow you need to jump on your desk and preach the word, right? That's not what he's saying here. But he's saying that the reason you're there to be scattered is because there are people wherever you are at that God wants to reach with the gospel. There are people there who need to hear the gospel. He's he's placed you there to build relationships, relationships with people in your school and your work and your neighborhoods and wherever you frequent to be able to, to, to connect with the gospel through those relationships. I love Sam Chan as we're reading, some of us are reading his book, that one of the best evangelism strategies he calls coffee dinner gospel. I love that. It's simple, you can do it, right? Coffee dinner gospel. You build a relationship and you take him out to coffee for a lunch break, or you take him out to coffee after work, right? And you talk about things you talk about when you're getting to know someone over coffee. Very surfacey stuff, right? Not meaning of life stuff, right? But you're you're building that relationship. And what do you do after you start to build a relationship? You have them over for dinner. And what do you do when you have people over for dinner? You start to talk about deeper things and other things. The most important things in life As you build that relationship. As as you're getting to know their world, they're getting to know your world. And our world revolves around the most important thing to us, and that's who Jesus is and what he did for us. Coffee, dinner, gospel. How God uses those relationships wherever he has placed you. So what goes through your mind is you are moving into a new neighborhood. Is you're starting a new job, Is you're moving to a new city, what goes through your mind? Is it, I got things to do, I've got a checklist to do, or, or maybe, man, this is a hard place to be, I need to find some Christians I can hang out with. Those aren't bad things, but God would also say, I have you there for a purpose, to build these relationships with people who need to hear the gospel. But one other thing, notice here in Acts 8, it's not just accidental providential placement, that there were some people who, in this providence of having to move, were intentional about where they would be scattered. Philip is an example. We see in in, in Acts chapter 8, verse 5, when the church was scattered, Philip chose to go down to Samaria. He went down. He made an intentional choice. Everyone's scattered, and I'm going to Samaria. Here's the question of why. Samaria was not good real estate for a Jew. Okay? They were not, uh, not a good neighbors to have a Jew move in to, to the Samaritan neighborhood, right? So it wasn't because this is a great, comfortable place to live. This was a hard place to live. This is a place to live where people are gonna look at him funny. This is a place where he lived where he has very little Christian community. This is a place where he can live, where, where there's it can be a very difficult choice, much easier choices of where to live than Samaria. So why did he go to Samaria? For the purpose of evangelism. Right? That's how what this whole next section set up. So a place to preach the word. Samaria was an entire region with nobody there to preach the gospel. No one's there. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus says that they would be his witnesses in Samaria, but at this point, no one was in Samaria. No believers were. It was completely unreached with the gospel. A whole pocket of people right next door, and no one to share with them. Who would go? Philip would go. So Philip, when he had to leave Jerusalem and he could choose any of the Middle East to live in, he decided to make this intentional choice and and go and live in this hard place. Were there easier places? Surely. We see that in in Antioch and Syria and some others. But he chose in this hard place for the sake of Christ. My friends, this is about as opposite as the American dream as you can get. right? Philip is not making his choice based on, I'm going to move upward in this world. I'm going to get a better house. I'm going to get a nicer neighborhood. I'm going to get a more comfortable place. Because he was choosing what to do and where to live based on his love for Jesus and the opportunities that would give him to be a witness. I'm amazed at this man. I'm amazed at this brother and his willingness to do anything or go anywhere so Jesus would be known and worshiped for who he is. Well, just take a moment and think. What could God do through our lives? What could God do through our church if we were like Philip? If we were so radical, if we were so countercultural, if we were so in love with Jesus, if we were so passionate about his gospel, it started to affect the choices we make in life. What if we chose our job opportunities? Not because of the growth potential it, make, growth potential it makes for us personally, but because of the potential it gives for us to, to, to do ministry, for, for us to do outreach, for us to, to work with a group of people or be near, be near a group of people who, who are completely unreached with the gospel. What if we chose our free time hobbies and our leisure activities, not because there are comfortable preferences, not because it, it, we get to do it with that same group from church that we always hang out with, but because there's a group of, pocket of, a group of people or a pocket of people in our community that we recognize that no one's there that knows the gospel. No one from Sierra Pines, no one from Sierra Vista, no one from Mountain Christian Center, no one from First Baptist, no one who knows the gospel's there. Who's going to go if not me and hang out with them? What if we as a church started doing ministry, not as just how we provide more programs for the same group of Christians, but look to identify places in our mountain community where there's no gospel church reaching out there and say, how do we spend our time there? How do we, how do we build relationships there? How do we spend our resources there for the sake of the kingdom? What if we were so radical, we started thinking of when we have to move, what if I chose where I live, not on the comfort or size of my house, but on the opportunities God could use that location for ministry. There's nothing wrong with certain locations and comfort or size, but how is God going to use that for ministry and for building relationships for those who need to hear the good news of the kingdom of God? Where are we to be witnesses? Wherever God places you. Whether that's wherever he scatters you providentially or whether he would lead you to intentionally place yourself for the sake of Christ being known. So he looked at everything except one last question. How? How 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 does this evangelism work? Look one last time at Acts chapter eight verse four, and let me ask you a question about this verse. How did evangelism take place? Was it a church-planned rally? No. Was it a church-planned evangelism program? No. Was it a church-planned anything? No. This was not part of the yearly calendar of the church. July third, scattered from persecution. No. How did the evangelism take place? It was a personal conviction every believer had. That's what had to happen. The church could encourage it. The church could teach about it. The church could remind them of Jesus' last words in Acts 1.8, but it, it was come down to each and every believer. To their, 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 so, so at to DB Free, we can talk about evangelism. We can plan evangelism programs. We can plan evangelism training. We can plan evangelism events. We can read books about evangelism. But you know what? evangelism will not take place unless you and I take the initiative, unless you and I have the personal conviction that it's our responsibility to engage in it. And so we return to that opening question. Are we here to talk or are we here to fish? And so let me ask you, do you have the personal conviction that you love God enough that you are amazed by that good news, that you love your neighbors enough, that, that for the sake of God, that he would be worshiped, for the sake of your neighbors, that they could, could know of that salvation that you will share with them, that you will intentionally look to build those relationships, coffee, dinner, gospel, build relationships so that you can share with them the good news. I, I want to leave us with one last application, and it's very simple. I know you're tired. I know you're hungry, so I'm going to make it real simple for you today. Here's the application I would love, and I've been praying about and considering for myself, and, 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 and just here's what, what the Shigo household is going to be talking about this week, and, and I'd love for you to join us. Is it, I, I borrowed this from Pastor J.D. Greer in the Summit Church, and they've seen amazing fruit from this one application, and it's called Who's Your One? Very simple. You don't have to have the gift of evangelism for this. You don't have to be an extrovert for this. You don't have to have an expert knowledge of apologetics for this. You just have to love Jesus and be willing for him to use you. Is that all of us, right? Here's the application. I want you to identify one person in your regular life that needs to know the gospel. One person. I'm not asking for a list of 10, a list of 20. One person. Maybe you have a person that already has jumped off your mind. You know who that is. One person. Maybe, th- 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 maybe you don't have that person that's set, but you need to think for your acquaintances of who can you start building relationship with? One person. Who's one person that needs to hear the gospel this year? Which I have most of the year left. Who's one person this year who needs to know the gospel? That's your one. That's your one. Do you have your one? Do I, Will I have my one? Will you promise to pray for that person every day? If we're not doing that, nothing else is going to happen, right? But will you pray for that person? Will you pray for that person by yourself? Will you pray for that person when you get together with your accountability partners and you share prayer requests, that that person's one of your prayer requests? When you have Bible study, we're praying for people that are sick and injured, which we should, but we're also praying for our ones, right? When, when you're with a friend and, and, and you're saying, hey, how can I be praying for you? That one of those prayer requests is for your one because that matters to us. We want them desperately to know the gospel and respond to Jesus. Would you pray for this person throughout this year? And then will you commit the rest of this year to be intentional and alert of what God would do to build that relationship, of, of how God would use through coffee and through dinner and through 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 entering their world, doing things with them in their world so that they would do things in your world, so that, that, that you would care about what's important to them, so that you have an opportunity to share about what's most important to you, the salvation through Jesus Christ, so that you have an opportunity to share Without that one, that you would make that, that one your God-given ministry this year. Maybe that means even certain church events we have, not Sunday mornings, but church events, you're saying, I can't go there because I'm spending time with my one because that's an important ministry. And you're spending time in their world so that they would be open to Jesus Christ, who's your world. We have a couple hundred people here this morning. Could you imagine? Could you imagine what God could do could you imagine the impact our church could have on this mountain community if we all just prayed and built relationships and asked God for for His blessing and, and, and favor to just lead one person to Christ each this year? What an impact for the kingdom would make! But it's a choice that each of us have to make. The church can't make that decision for us. The church leadership, the ministries, the pastors—we can't make that decision for anybody. It comes down to a personal conviction. You and I have to decide. Are we going to fish? Are we going to talk? Or are we going to fish? It, it, do we have that love for Christ? Do we have that love for others? Do we have that amazement of the gospel that we would be fishers of men? That we'd be those who intentionally build those relationships to look for those opportunities to share that glorious good news that saved us and the glorious good news that has power to save others as well. Let me pray. Father, we pray that you would work in our hearts. We know these things. Father, I know that that, probably almost nothing I shared this morning is new to people, but what needs to be new is your work in our hearts to to build us the conviction that these things are true, to build us the wonder in your gospel, to build us the, 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 the wonder that you would give us the responsibility to be your witnesses, and that we would go and do that, that we would love you enough, that we would love our neighbors enough to build those relationships and to look for those opportunities to share your gospel. We pray, Lord, that you would work in our lives individually and as a church and that you'd work through us for your kingdom, for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.